Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today we're going to talk about land use planning and the vital role it plays in shaping our communities and city region. From building new communities to protecting our environment, planners are central to just about every aspect of city building and land development. And underlying it all is an approvals process guided by countless policies and regulations, some of which have undergone significant changes in recent years. To learn more about the profession, I'm joined by Emma West, partner at Bousefields Inc and Vice Chair and Chair of, of Mission Advancement with the Urban Land Institute here in Toronto. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be a part of it. So the term land use planner, urban planner, city planner, whatever you want to call it, I think for those who are not close to the profession uh, may not be entirely clear what it is that planners do. So um, how do you like to describe what planners do? Well, it's a pretty broad category, and a lot of people who graduate with a planning degree go in many, many different directions, and even how planning has evolved over the years, there have been many different focuses. Sometimes it's on the social aspects of what our world brings to us, and so movements in planning have changed, but as a land use planner, you're very focused on what's happening on the land in our communities and those could be cities and urban areas they could also be rural areas in some in some cases we're called town planners um, and so it's it's about how you are going to organize a community and whether that's an urban or rural community um, it, it's going to vary how you organize that but you want to look at where people are going to live, where they're going to work, where they're going to play, what areas you need to protect, so natural areas or heritage, and then um, figure out how all of that works together, how we move in our communities, and how that connects to the land use as well. So it's it's complicated in some ways, but it's pretty straightforward for people to understand, I think, because we all experience the world around us and really planning deals with all of that and so unlike some other professions you know if you're a brain surgeon or something you may not fully understand what that requires but as a planner you you look at the community around you and that's maybe the most simple way and how you're going to experience it and use it and move through it. So what do you think planners are good at? Uh, you know, the again, the focus can change depending on what type of planner you are, but um, I think being able to put yourself in a, a, a circumstance without it actually being built and being able to visualize what that is. So planners need to be good at understanding maps and drawings that are two-dimensional, but also being able to see that as it will evolve into a three-dimensional world around you. And so being able to visualize and understand how you're going to 
use an area, but also analysis and listening and communication. There are so many aspects to being a planner and some planners might focus on community engagement or if you're working on a plan for a whole city, you obviously have to talk to a lot of people to understand how that's going to come together. So it relies on a, a lot of communication skills. Yes, yes. And you have to be able to talk to people who aren't necessarily, you know, experts in the field. And you're also going to be talking to people who do know the drill and, you know, deal with it day to day. So developers are working in the planning world all the time. Other planners are as well. But when you're having a community meeting, you need to be able to speak to the community as well. Well, do you often find that um, people really question what is an urban planner? They Do they ever ask are you not a civil engineer or an architect? Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of overlap. There are a number of engineers who are planners and there are a number of architects who are planners. And then there's this whole field of urban design, which is also planning, but it's also understanding the built form. And um, in some places, architects are the planners. Um, in the past I don't know, 10 years or so, the movement to have landscape architects come up with plans for communities or neighborhoods has really been the focus. And that's landscape urbanism is one aspect of that, where the idea is that they understand the landscape better than anyone and how things should work together. And so why not landscape architects? So I think who a planner is and what their background is and what their focus is can vary. There are people who go to school to become planners and they know from their first degree, their undergraduate degree, meaning they knew in high school what a planner was and that they wanted to become one. Um, There are those types of people who learn about it in school very early on. And then there are people who find it in other ways. So maybe you are are an architect and you found planning through some of the architecture work that you were doing. So it's very interdisciplinary. You don't have to come at it from a degree. uh, Specifically in urban planning, you can come at it from a variety of different degrees as long as you have the aptitude uh, for that sort of holistic view of of the world. Right, and I think that's that's a big part of what attracted me to it as well, that you have to look at so many different things, transportation and services and... Um, the public realm and what those where people are going to live and work in buildings and all of that. So you do need to be able to step back and evaluate and um, figure out how those competing demands in some cases are going to work together and what the trade-offs are. Okay. Well, let's get into the kind of work you do. You know, um, unlike um, planners in government who... Um, uh, develop policies and they review development applications for approval. Um, planning consultants such as yourself, uh, you work on behalf of a variety of different clients, different interests. So tell me the kind of work that you do as a consultant. So as a consultant, you your life could be a little bit more like a, a, a public sector planner, depending on what you're focusing on. You may be a consultant who is doing a lot of projects for the public sector. So maybe you're working with a city or a town to help them develop that policy because perhaps they don't have the capacity depending on how big they are or they don't have a particular area of expertise or there's just too much going on and they need some 
outside support. So as a planning consultant, you might be developing a plan with them and, you know, they're obviously directing it as the municipality. So you could be a consultant working with the public sector or you could be a consultant working with the private sector. So with developers, also with different public sector agencies who sort of are in the middle of doing public sector work and the pure private sector work. So um, with some institutions or land agencies of the government as well. So you cover the full gamut between public and private um, clients, um, both um, city level as well as regional and rural as well, or is it mostly just city? Uh, I have in the past covered off all aspects of that. Right now I'm more focused on the private sector type work or the development applications type work. Mm-hmm. Um, my firm, Bousfields does almost entirely development application type work, although we do some public sector work where we can. Um, In my previous jobs, I did a lot more of the public sector work and definitely at all scales, regional down to a neighborhood. And then, of course, as you get into the application side of it, you're down at the site scale. So... Yeah, I've, I've done all scales. So do you have any examples either that your firm's worked on or just in general, some examples of where planners got it right, either in, in the city proper or elsewhere, some good examples of how a, how a planning consultant or planning work uh, really made a difference in the good way? Uh One example I can think of as a public sector project working with the private sector is a project that um, my old firm that I used to work at was on. I wasn't heavily involved in it, but I I know the detail of it. It was the Eglinton Connect study. So uh, Eglinton is a corridor here in Toronto where there's going to be a new light rail. And as a part of that, the city looked at what you could do to develop along that and what you what policies you could put in place to allow for development along a transit corridor, which is what most policy directs you to look at to support the use of that transit and to also allow people to get into a different mode so they can move through the community and, you know, not deal with traffic on the road so much. So in that case, it was an integrated study where while they were looking at the redesign of the road itself and looking where you could put bike lanes and how you could improve the sidewalk. At the same time, part of the team was also looking at intensification potential along that corridor. This is all to support this crosstown, right? The LRT. All to support the crosstown um, and recognizing that when transit comes, there's interest in development in those areas because people want to live and work in those areas. And so one of the interesting things that came out of that was that they weren't just looking at the properties right along Eglinton um, and the zoning bylaw that was put in place to support that plan allowed you to look a few properties in on the cross streets with Eglinton so that you could get the block depth um, to put up a mid-rise building for example. So I think that's an example of where there has been successful forethought because sometimes, you know, you'll do a corridor study and if, if you haven't looked at 
how reasonable it would be for someone to actually develop the site, then you may end up with a corridor that's identified for future intensification, but the sites can't actually accommodate Mm -hmm. the size of building and the size of block that you would need for that. So I think that was great because it meant that the city with the team of consultants were working together to really understand what the potential along that corridor was. And sometimes you can't go into that level of detail if you're working at a regional scale or if you're working at a citywide scale. You don't necessarily have the opportunity and so you might be identifying corridors as you know, higher density areas, but you haven't done the test yet. And of course, there's a system to allow you to get into more detail. Um, but I think it's useful if you can always think one step ahead mm-hmm. of where you think you actually need to be with with whatever that product is to test out if it works or not. So you so that zoning change is now in place. Yeah. And have we seen any developments flourish from that? There's definitely been a lot of development interest. I mean, particularly at Young and Eglinton, but that study actually didn't look at the Young and Eglinton area specifically because there's another plan that's been developed and being updated for that area. But um, yes, there has been interest along the corridor. I think as the LRT finishes its construction and starts to open, there will be more and more interest. But I think it was a good step at looking one level beyond in terms of the detail to understand if it's actually going to work or not. Maybe a little bit more challenging. Do you have any examples of where planners got it wrong, either currently or in the past, that you you would look to and say, we could have done better? Hmm, that's a tricky one because, you know, it, you hindsight is twenty twenty, and so knowing now that something could have worked better, I think generally the move by planners, um, you know, maybe in the 70s, 80s yeah. to separate uses and the way we designed our suburban areas to um, be less connected. And I, there was a reason why people wanted to do that because they were emphasizing safe, comfortable neighborhoods and, you know, they wanted kids to be able to play at the end of a cul-de-sac and um, they wanted the residential areas separate from industrial areas. And if you look further back in history, there are obvious reasons why people came to those conclusions that having an industrial building right beside a house is probably not going to be the best thing for the health of the person living right next to heavy industry, even from a noise perspective, they're not necessarily compatible uses, but that led us to a point where things were so separate and the layout and structure of communities meant that um, if you lived in a big block that was, you know, probably um, surrounded by major arterial roads, there were only a few points where you could get onto those arterial roads and if you if you're a pedestrian in those areas it was probably going to take you a very long time to get from an internal point all the way out to an arterial road rather than a grid or a modified grid network where as a pedestrian or a cyclist it would be easier to get to the arterial roads so you can see there are complications with separating those uses. And I think 
you know, something like the province's growth plan. Yeah, so we'll get into that later, but the growth plan is really to help concentrate um, development and population growth in more of an And and to focus on complete communities as well. And so I think, you know, the last 10, 15 years, maybe even 20, we've seen a move to mix things up a little bit more and to have more permeability in our neighborhoods so that you can move through them in different ways. Um, And so I would say that's probably something that you can see the reason why it happened in the past. And we can see that it probably wasn't as successful as we had hoped it would be. But at the same time, there are still people who really enjoy living in those areas. I think it becomes challenging maybe as our population ages, those would be harder areas if you don't have a car to move around. It's difficult if you're a teenager living there. Um, And maybe from an accessibility point of view as well, it gets a little bit tricky to move around if you're in those areas that rely on a car. So hopefully uh, we've got it right this time. Well, this, this is the thing we, you know, we have to experience it. We have to test things out. So maybe we think we're doing things hundred percent correct right now, but we will look back 20 years from now and say, well, we could have done that better. Um, but if, I think if we've set things up and we're trying to think ahead and think about how a community is going to evolve, then maybe we're going to be a little bit further ahead than where we were years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into a little bit about this, um, the legislation or the recent changes to legislation. Um, In the last two or three years, we've seen a lot of significant changes to planning legislation that impact how planners go about doing what they do. And um, I, myself being a planner, I find it actually kind of dizzying the extent of new rules and regulations that we need to familiarize ourselves with. So there's the recent changes to the Planning Act. Uh, updates to the growth plan um, of the Greater Golden Horseshoe, the Greenbelt Plan, the Oak Ridge's Moraine Plan, the Niagara Scarpin Plan. Then there's the inclusionary zoning for affordable housing. There's the new Toronto Local Appeal Body. Uh, and most recently, the Local Planning Appeal Tribunal, uh, also known as the LPAT, as a replacement to the Ontario Municipal Board. It's a lot. Yes, it, really it is, is a lot. Yes. So... Um, Why do we have all these changes that seem to have kind of come down uh, in a relatively short period of time? Uh, Part of it is because with each plan, there is a timeline within which um, you want to review a plan. And, you know, as a planner, you learn that you have a plan in place. You need to monitor what happens with that plan. And then you need to accept that you're going to have to update it at some point. So... The fact that those four provincial plans that you mentioned, the Oak Ridge's Moraine, the Niagara Escarpment Plan, the Growth Plan, and the Greenbelt Plan all needed to be reviewed and updated seems like a lot, but it makes sense. And they did a coordinated review with those. It probably would have been helpful to also have the Metrolinx Regional Transportation Plan as a part of that coordinated review because... We are definitely seeing more focus on the integration of transportation planning and land use planning. Um, And it just makes complete sense to look at those two things together because we need to move and live and work in our communities. Um, So certainly um, 
reviewing plans is something that always happens. Even a plan for a city, which, you know, is known as an official plan, those get reviewed and updated. So not surprising. Um, As you go through a process of reviewing the plan, you've obviously looked at how successful it's been. So again, looking at the growth plan, um, the province wanted to make some changes in that. And I think part of it comes from engagement with stakeholders in the community and recognizing where they think they need to address some of the changes and the requests that they hear for changes. Um, And then in terms of the Planning Act, again, that's something that gets updated regularly. I mean, if you look at the provincial policy statement, which provides broad level policy direction that comes from items in the Planning Act, that has been updated maybe every five to 10 years or so as well. And it really works with what the focus in our communities are. So the last version of the provincial policy statement, obviously it's 2014. And so working in some climate change direction in there and um, more of that focus as well as changes to do with land use and um, protection of natural heritage, it it evolves based on what our communities identify as being important. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, with all these changes, what do you think is, do you think some have had more impact than others? Well, some of the changes that have happened, including um, the last set of changes to the Planning Act, uh, we don't know yet. Um, and the reform of the Ontario Municipal Board, which will now be LPAT, as you said. We don't know what the impact of those changes are going to be because that's very new. So So just for our listeners who aren't familiar with what the LPAT is uh, as a a replacement to the Ontario Municipal Board, what just, I guess, as a quick summary, what LPAT is. So it is a tribunal in the same way that the Ontario Municipal Board was. I think there's been some confusion that because the word local is in that local planning, LPAT. Um, So I think people thought that each municipality would have its own tribunal, but it's still a provincially led organization. And the differences are that there are new tests. So if you were appealing something before, you looked at it within the broader context of whether or not this was good planning and you looked at whether or not it was consistent with provincial policies and plans and the citywide official plan and the zoning bylaw. Um, And so it was reviewed in a broader context. Now the tests really focus in on whether or not it's consistent with and conforms to provincial policies and plans. And if you are appealing something as an applicant, you need to also demonstrate how what the city has or the town has in place is not consistent with and does not conform to the provincial policies and plans. So it's a two-step test. Um, So the grounds for appeal, um, the bar is set a little bit higher for those in terms of what you have to prove through the tests. Um, And there's more emphasis on council's decision as well. 
so again, this is all very new. As of April um, 1st? April, April, April 3rd. April 3rd. And so no one has gone through an appeal process yet under LPAT. So we all don't know. And I think people also should understand that a lot of the things that were appealed to the Ontario Municipal Board before April 3rd are still going to go through the process that applied when it was the Ontario Municipal Board. So they don't apply these new tests. They apply the old tests for the appeal. So there will still be a lot of appeals that go through in the same way that they did before as they clear those out of the system. Um, At the same time, there will be these new appeals. And I think everyone's really interested to see how the first ones go. I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to those because it is very different. The Ontario Municipal Board was in place for a very long time. And whether people liked it or not, you knew what the system was and how it worked. The process that's involved here is is very different as well. There's no... um, there are limitations on oral evidence. So in the past, if you appealed, you would have witnesses, they would give evidence at the hearing. Now, um, they will rely mostly on the written record. So reports that you've written, letters, submissions, etc. And so even that changes. So the way that you're going to communicate your policies, your argument, your staff report, if you're a planner at a municipality or your planning rationale report, if you're a planning consultant, that's going to become the focus of the evidence at a hearing. And so that may change the way you need to explain things in that document, because in the past, you might have put that in a witness statement. So just the way we have to think about framing what it is we're trying to say is going to become very different. You need a very strong argument up front. So how have the developers responded to this? How have local politicians responded? Maybe local community groups responded? Um, I imagine some are more in favor of this new LPAT than others. I've heard different things. Um, You know, I've heard some developers say, particularly the ones who haven't appealed many things in the past that it's really not going to change their lives too much um you know certainly there are some out there that are in a position to appeal something maybe they're a bit hesitant because they don't want to be the first one through but um they still think that there's a reason and in in many cases there would still be strong justification for an appeal um and and so you know, there are mixed reviews on what people think about this. Um, I think in terms of council um, and and staff at municipalities, again, I've heard different things, and I think it depends, it varies depending on the municipality, where it is, how many appeals they were already dealing with. The idea is that perhaps once all the old Ontario Municipal Board appeals, make it through the system, and we're entirely focused on this new LPAT, the new tests, and the new appeal process. Once we're focused on that, people might be reversing the load of the work. Preparing for a hearing took a lot of time, and particularly if it was a long hearing, you're going to be spending a lot of time there. So maybe you're going to spend that time up front. Um, And even as a staff person, um, that 
it, it just may mean at municipalities they have to rethink a bit of their process as well. Um, I, I have certainly heard different councillors and staff people from municipalities say that, you know, they think that it's a good thing for them. Um, and then in terms of the community, certainly, you know, f- for people who get involved in the planning process quite regularly, they probably understand what it means. But I've also heard things like because of the new process, it actually may end up being a little more challenging to be a community association and to get into an appeal because if you didn't have something on the written record going through the approvals process, if that's the only evidence that's there, what do you have mm-hmm. to appeal? What do you what do you have as evidence that's going to go to that tribunal? So there's more pressure on constituents to work closely with their local re- representative, the councillor or mayor to really push their agenda if, if they're successful. Right, yeah, yeah. And, mm. and they need to think about what they have on the written record. So yeah, it's, it, these are all things that everything's we're in speculating, right everything's in flux, so yeah. So with all these changes, um, uh, and as growth continues to, to uh, build in the, in the Toronto region, how do you see uh, the planning profession evolving and how, how might its uh, impact change over the time? I think a lot of what planners do is going to stay the same. Um, as I was saying at the beginning, we need to be strong communicators. We need to collaborate and work with a variety of people, whether that's the community or stakeholders. If you're a public sector planner or you're a planning consultant, you're going to engage with all different types of people. Uh, I think the it may shift in terms of when you engage. There may be more engagement if it's a development application upfront. You may start to talk to the community more um, than you would have in the past, even before you submit an application. Uh, and there may be different ways that you're going to consult with the community. A lot of that happens already, but maybe it will just happen more and more and more. Um, so I think we'll be doing the same type of work we just might shift when we do that work and there might be a greater emphasis on some parts of it. And like I said, if you're the type of planner who's been giving evidence at a hearing quite a bit, uh, you know, you're going to be focused more on your written evidence and less on presenting that case as a witness um, and presenting your opinion. As planners, though, we we meant most of us would be registered professional planners and um, there's definitely a move to change how that is structured and um, to make it much more formal and so as a planner um, you know maybe you're almost going to be like an engineer stamping every report that you write and drawings and things like that you're already supposed to do some of that but it's not a solid requirement Um, and so it may mean that what it is to be a registered professional planner becomes a little bit tighter Um, but there are so many aspects to planning like if you're focused on community engagement um, again it it may just all shift it may stay the same Um, I I don't think what it means to be a planner because it is such a broad thing will Mm -hmm. substantially change might just change the order of when you do things. 
Well, talking, <clears throat> excuse me, talking about professions, I want to end off just by um, pointing out a, po- a poster that was um, released late last fall, and it, it, uh, it was an ad campaign for the Take Our Kids to Work Day, uh, which was put out by the Learning Partnership. And um, there were four professions. This is for kids to look at what kind of career choices they, they, they see for themselves. And I remember when I was in planning school, planning was not a very um, high up, a very popular kind of profession. But what I'm amazed to see is that uh, there are four on this poster. They have chef, mechatronic engineer, a video blogger, and an urban planner. Uh, and that is really incredible to see. Um, so why do you think the profession is high up on young people's radars? I, I think a few things. I mean, um, people are more aware of what planning is and the impact it has on your community. And it's definitely been a growing profession. So just the number of people alone out there who are working on it has grown. And so, you know, it, more people are going to hear about it because more people are doing it. But I think we have really shifted to think more about our communities and what's important to us. And as our cities grow and get busier, people start to think about it more and more. If you're, if there isn't something that's bothering you in your life, you're not going to pay too much attention to it. And so people come out to community meetings and they're really concerned about what's happening in their cities. Young people, you're saying. Young people. And they, they, you know, they're thinking about bike lanes and parks and new buildings in their communities. And I think there's also more outreach as well in terms of getting younger people thinking about what planning is. And sometimes that comes through a geography course in Mm -hmm. high school. Uh, But I, I, I think the awareness factor has gone up and that's probably been promoted through many means but I think people are just more interested in what's happening in their communities and so they find planning in that way it was also uh, I think it was in Canadian business it was rated as one of the top jobs to have maybe last year the year before a growing field yeah Um, and as a planner, if you went to school as a planner, there are so many things that you could end up doing and so many different ways you could apply that. And I think it's a skill set because it requires analysis and you know great communication skills. And there are just so many types of work you could apply that to. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll see many more young planners getting into the profession and making a difference because really that's what it's about, making a difference for our society and for our built community. Yes. Uh, and I imagine that's why young people are uh, motivated because they want to make a difference. It's true. Um, yeah. Yeah. So thanks again for spending the time. Uh, this has been really informative and um, all the best with the, the new changes <laughs> in, in planning legislation. Great. Thanks. Thank you.